Dear Heavenly Father, again, here I am asking you to help me. And um, Lord, I just thank you that you want us to hear from you, Lord. I thank you for the message that you put on my heart. I thank you for the time I got to spend with you in your word. I pray that um, something in this study will touch each and every one of these ladies here, that they would just hear from you a new promise or some old promise just refreshed in their heart, Lord. Um, I pray for my nerves that you would just help me to be calm and to be able to teach your word, Lord. Empty me of me. Just take away all of my fleshy anxiety and issues. Lord, just use me as your vessel, Lord. Here I am, and please just fill me up with your spirit and take away anything that's not of you in this message that it would only be what you want these ladies to hear. And I just lay it all at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay. Okay. So. Okay. Okay, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about last week. So if you weren't here last week, you can kind of catch up. We started last week in chapter 1, talking about how um, King Ahasuerus, which I found out mean is more of a title. Ahasuerus is more like it means high father or esteemed king. That's his title, not his name. His name was King Xerxes. So if you hear it kind of like some versions have Xerxes, some have Ahasuerus, you'll know that it's the same person, different some people call me B. Some people call me Belinda. I'm the same person. Um, but so in chapter one, he had a feast and he was currying favors for his endeavors and um, desires to take over Greece. He wanted to invade and take over. Um, there was lots of wine. He requested Vashti to come and wear her crown and kind of be like, I am the king's lady. But she said no. And um, this ultimately got her removed from her position. She's no longer queen. She's no longer allowed to see the king. And that was a law written in the law of the Medes and the Persians, which was irrevocable. Irrevocable. They could not change the laws that were written in their laws. They could alter, like do a new law, which we'll see later in the book of Esther. That kind of helps with the law that was made, but they can't change it. Once it's in there, it's done. Okay, so that's what happened. Um, so in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Um, the gap between, so it says, after these things is not necessarily like, and right after he had this feast, he felt bad. No, it was actually um, what we found out is that it's four years has gone by. He's actively tried to invade Greece, he failed, and he came home, and he was defeated and humiliated, and um, as we can see, he was feeling lonely and regretful. Okay, in verse 2, it goes on to say that the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of women. And let beauty preparations be given to them. Let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. So what we see here is the servants probably were like, oh no, the king's mad, the king's not happy. We need to figure out a way to make him happy. He's just, he's erratic. He has some rash decisions that he's made in the past, and they don't want to be the object of his anger. 
and they're playing on his appetite for pleasure, they suggest he refill his harem. The most beautiful of them all would replace Vashti. The king got to pick any one of them. It wasn't like he had to marry a princess. He could just pick one, any one of them. He could actually try them all out and then pick one. (laughs) And only one of them would be queen. And the ancient historian Josephus, he says that it was approximately 400 women. Um, So one would be queen. 399 of them would become concubines, and that would be their life. They would just move on to the next house of the ladies, and that's just really bleak. We'll talk more about that later. Okay, so moving on to to verse 5. 5 and 6 is what we're going to look at next. It says, In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem, with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So this is this is where it talks about we're introduced to Mordecai. We see him for the first time here, I think. First time, right? And it talks about how did this Jewish man come to be in Persia? I had a lot of fun looking at this. I don't know if it was... Like, you know how there's Ancestry.com and you can, like, chart back your people? I haven't done that, but I think it sounds cool. But, I, you know, if you look in the Bible, it does it for you. For them, not for me, but for them. So we meet Mordecai. We're given a glimpse of his Jewish background and how he came to be there. So if we go back 100 years ago from here, from this time, 100 years ago, Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem over, and he exiled the Jews. His, Mordecai's family was deported to Babylonian Empire, and according to my Nelson study Bible, the Babylonians' policy for taking captives was pretty interesting. They would leave the poor and the weak captives to work the land, and the strong and skilled they would elevate to positions of authority, and that would win their loyalty. Like They were like, okay, you're not going to kill me. You're going to make me one of your fancy people. And the leaders were taken to Babylonian cities where they were permitted to live together, find jobs, and become important parts of society. So that kind of explains like how they got in society. Um, if you want to write it down and read later, I thought I was having fun checking out the where this where they how they came to be, where they are. You can look in Second Kings chapter twenty four, Second Chronicles thirty six, verse twenty, and Jeremiah twenty four. They talk about when the Jerusalem was taken by Nebuchadnezzar, like in Jeremiah 24.1, it says that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carried away the captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the carpenters and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had them brought to Babylon. And it just it confirms it in different parts. Like So the, the scriptures that I told you you could look at later, it just talks about it confirms that he did. He took them from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then, because they're not in Babylon right now, they're in Persia. So how did they get to Persia? This was my favorite part. Okay. If you read, how many of you have read Daniel? Anybody here has read? I mean, I know I've glimpsed through it a few times. But you can find out about King Nebuchadnezzar. Like, it's really interesting. He's like, he's a super great king and very high and mighty He's got the big statue and the whole, like, fiery furnace, all that, you know, that story. 
But so, and then it also talks about how he gets cast out of the kingdom, and he goes and lives in the forest, and imagine, like, bearded man with long toenails and acting like an animal, just, ooh. But it was a good story. If you want to read it, if you're looking for a good read, the Bible is a good one. <laughs> but also, you'll see how they became to be in Persia. Later on in chapter 5, it talks about King Belshazzar, who was one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors. He was having another feast. We'll see they like the feasts. But he was surrounded, his, his kingdom was surrounded by the Persians. But he was still having a feast, like a last hurrah. He didn't, he was like, you know, when you don't look at the problem and you just like go have a party instead. That's what he was kind of doing. But what happened at this party, they were, they were misbehaving in all sorts of ways as Gentiles do. And, um, they were like desecrating holy goblets and things. And all of a sudden, picture it, a floating hand comes over and writes on the wall. What? That's crazy. That's very exciting. I thought it was, I mean, could you imagine? The Bible has great stories. It's so exciting. But so, and if you want to hear how they became to be in Persia, because that's the point we're getting at here. Um, the What the finger writes on the walls is, and I might say it wrong, but I'm going to say it anyway. Mene, mene, tekel, you... Ooh, fair sin. But if you translate that in English, it's Mene says, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Talking about Babylon. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peris, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And that's how Mordecai became to be in Persia. It's very exciting. A floating hand. Gosh, this is cool. It is like a ghost story. That was in Daniel 5. So exciting. I remember seeing cartoons about this when I was a child. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. But now I'm like, oh my gosh. It's still in the Bible. It's still like, it's real. Oh my gosh. But yeah, it's super cool. Okay, so that's how we find out about Mordecai living in Persia. So it says in verse 7 of Esther 2, and Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we learn here that Mordecai is like a father to her. He's an uncle, raised her as a daughter. It's not too hard to understand. Um, but as we go through this chapter, we'll see how he just expresses his care for her and his love. And how he's like really attentive to her and takes care of her. And we'll also see how Esther is obedient and respectful to, to his wishes and what he asks of her. Um, why does it say Hadassah, that is Esther? Um, it was Jewish custom to have a sacred name, a sacred Hebrew name, and a secular understandable by their adopted culture name. And so Hadassah is her Hebrew name, and it means myrtle. And I actually got a picture of myrtle from um, that area of the world. I was going to be fancy and have it on the big screen, but I just ran out of time. So this is a myrtle flower that comes on a tree, and it's like star-shaped. And Esther also means star. And it's said that it could be because she rises out of, like, from her people. And, but it's exciting, you know. Have you ever looked up your name meaning? It's kind of fun. So, But hers had a name, and it did apply to her story, and it was really cool. Okay, so moving on to verse 8. 
It says, So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther was also taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Esther and the other virgins were gathered. This is where it gets kind of action-packed for her. This is where it really gets going. So I just want to talk about what what exactly did they have in store? Um, there's speculation like Veggie Tales, like it's a beauty pageant. They whoever's prettiest and sweetest gets the gets the job. But in God's word, it says they were gathered. And to me, I picture like because I like stories that are like visual in my head. And so I picture it like gathered. Okay, if soldiers are if the if the king's men are gonna gather the women, they're probably not gonna be like, okay, come with me, sweetie. They're gonna be like, come on, you're a virgin, you're coming with me, and they just gather all of them, all of them. And it had to be scary <clears throat> when I was 13. If someone would have come to my house and said, you're going to come and maybe be queen, maybe not, but you're going to have to sleep with him and you're coming with me, oh, no. <laughs> that would have been really horrifying. So I just, like, put myself in their shoes and think about what they're going through and scary, scary stuff. But, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I have a lot of notes here. Okay. Okay, deep breaths, okay. So, thanks. Okay, so verse 9, it says, Now the young woman, talking about Esther, pleased him. Haggai, the eunuch, she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowances. And then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. So right here we see where Esther starts to obtain favor. She, um, it richly benefited her. I mean, she got more beauty preparations than her allowances. She got seven servants. She got the best place in the house. This is really, that's a lot of perks, you know, and there's, there's only one best place in the house and she got it. But, um, this is where you see, like, her personality start to come out. Her, just the way that she is. She didn't, she wasn't grasping for this. This, she obtained it. But, so I have this little story. Um, my mom used to tell me that sweet goes farther than sour. And so if you think about it, if you're sweet or if you're agreeable, you could curry favor in that way. Not that you're going to get everything you want by being sweet and nice, but you're more likely to move ahead if you're being kind and being sweet, you'll gain favor. Um, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about in life when you're... I know that like life can be hard, and there can be a lot of things that get thrown into your deck of cards that can make you really frustrated. And I know that when I'm going on, on fumes, like after a long night or whatever... I can, like, my flesh wants to just, like, hurry and rush and be frustrated. And I can take it out on the people I love. But that's not what the Lord wants for us. He wants us to to be kind to each other and showing that it's beneficial to be kind. Um, I think about in our efforts to share the gospel with people. How do we How do we talk to people about the Lord? We don't win them over by being like, I'm right and you're wrong and Jesus is Lord and your your God is not. Like, that doesn't work. You can't win people over by, 
by winning an argument that just never works out well. It says in Romans 2.24 that it's your kindness, Lord, that brings us to repentance. It's God's perfect love. And there's so many examples. Like, like Esther, she was, it doesn't say that she was seeking the Lord, but she obtained favor with her, with her actions, with how she was behaving. I think of other people, like, I know we all have people in our lives that have won us over with their kindness or just really impacted us because of the way that they treated us with kindness and love. Um, I really, I just have to mention, because it was when I was studying, um, a great man had passed away. It was Pastor Chuck. And I think about his kindness. When I think of Pastor Chuck, I think his legacy is not that he was this super awesome, wonderful, gifted, perfect person, but that he was kind to almost every person he saw. He was, they called him a marshmallow, didn't they? It's because, like, a teddy bear, because he was just sweet and kind and loving, and he felt with every fiber of his being he had, he had love and he had kindness. And that was, to me, that's his legacy, and it's going to go on because of the love and kindness that he shared with people. And I would encourage you that if you are kind to someone and they don't burst a plant of seed and love all of a sudden, it's okay. Seeds take a minute and they take some cultivation and the Holy Spirit will be doing that work. But what kind of seeds are you planting today with the people you're around? What kind of, what kind of seeds do you plant in your day to day when you get different thorns in your flesh or different um, irritations to your schedule? What kind of seeds do you plant? Just because I get ruffled, do I change the seeds that I'm throwing out? Just a challenge. Okay, <clears throat> in verse 10, it says that Esther had not revealed her people or her family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day, Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. So here we see she's still hiding her heritage after all this is happened to her she's not telling everybody who that she's a Jew and um and we also see that Mordecai is still keeping tabs on her and I don't think that there was tons of parents pacing the front of the gates there might have been a couple but we know that Mordecai was and um yeah okay <clears throat> Um, I have it noted here, and I really want to say, but I'm not really sure how to, but it's, I, I put in here that from the beginning of the story, from Vashti being deposed to having Esther gathered with the other virgins from her heritage to being being concealed, from her keeping it a secret, this there's a reason for each thing. Each re- There's a reason for each thing that she did, that Mordecai did, that happened to Vashti. It all had a purpose. And even though some of them were hard, like when Esther was gathered with the other virgins, that wasn't probably fun, you know, but it had a purpose. And it just made me, it made me think of James 1 verse 2. It says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And what we learn from that verse and just from like knowing that God's providence is at work here knowing that even if it hurts, it produces something. Like if you are into gardening at all, if you have a blueberry bush that's not giving you blueberries, you cut it down. You prune it. You cut down, and the next year, it's usually fruitful. It usually is more fruitful, but that pruning hurts. You know, it takes takes pieces out of you, takes pieces off. It cleans you out, and then you have fresh growth. But So when you go through hard things... 
remember that it's doing something. It's not for, it's not, it's not in vain. You're not going through trials in vain. It's producing. God's at work. There's a purpose for it. Okay. In Esther chapter 2, verse 12, each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh, in six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women, thus prepared each young woman, went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went in, and the morning she returned to the second house of women, to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her by name. So here we are shown what each of the maidens had in store. Twelve months of beauty preparations, which started with six months spent with the oil of myrrh. Now, everybody nowadays is super hyped about essential oils, and I have to admit, I like them too. Um, I, I like it too. I'm just not pro at it. I don't know everything. So I had to look on the internet about myrrh. Let's see what myrrh has going for it. So six months they spent with myrrh, and it's believed, this is from, I found a really cool article from, it's the title of the article was Women of Valor, found on skin care in the Bible, and also easy essentials, easy essential oils that come, whatever. But it was an article about myrrh, because I didn't know what it did. Okay, it says that myrrh is believed to have anti-aging and hormone-like properties. It's reported to stimulate circulation, decrease inflammation, soothe inflamed skin, and prevent wrinkles. It heals fungal infections, heals mouth sores, and it alleviates stretch marks. It repels parasites and insects. It's pretty good. It's pretty useful. And we also know myrrh was one of the gifts given to Jesus at, at his, when he was born from the wise men. So what we know about myrrh is it's pretty good. Good stuff. So they spent six months with all that. So they probably were pretty looking good after that, but they had more in store. Um, and they also had the six... Oh, okay, yeah. They had the six months with oil of myrrh, and then they had six months later. Okay, why? Why did they do these things? Well, Matthew Poole says that the oils and perfumes were necessary because the bodies of men and women in those hot countries did of themselves yield very ill sense if not corrected and qualified by art. (laughs) I won't say any more about that. (laughs) After six months of myrrh, there were six more months spent with perfumes and preparations for the beautifying of women. So I picture these women, before they came to the first house of women, they were living, living... Their lives, you know, working the fields, getting calluses, getting sunburns. They were busy doing life, and then they were gathered. And King Xerxes did not want calluses on his ladies. He didn't want them to be burnt. That was not what he wanted. He wanted good-looking girls. And according to David Gusick's study guide for Esther chapter 2, Persia was one of the many countries famous for its aromatic perfumes and ancient customs for preparations of the brides including ritualistic baths, plucking of the eyebrows, painting of hands and feet with henna, 
facial makeup, and applying beautiful paste, beautifying paste all over the body, meant to lighten the color of your skin and remove spots and blemishes. So they were known for this. So they were just doing what their country, the culture, that's what they did. I'm sure they looked really good. Something interesting I found out in my research was not only was it to get these girls looking just primo, they were also, the king was being sneaky, he was rolling out, ruling out any secret pregnancies. You think it takes nine months to bake a baby. You have 12 months of beautifying preparations. That's enough time to grow and know that it's not your baby. So he didn't want to be accused of fathering these children unless they were actually his. But, because he was, he was kind of selfish. But that was one of the interesting things of possibly why it had to be such a long time. More importantly, though, when we think of these women spending a whole year on beautifying, and I think of, like, I really have, like, ten minutes to get beautiful. Um, But as women today, how much time do we spend on our outward appearance? And I know, like, in seasons of life, we might have, like, an hour to get ready for work or whatever we're doing that day, or we have, like, ten minutes before the school bus comes, or whatever we do, we we have our routines, you know, we paint the barn, or we fix the hair, or we pick out the clothes, like, what are we doing to get ready? But what's more important? It says in Proverbs 31.30 that charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. And it says in 1 Peter 3.3-4, do not let your adornment be merely outward arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart which is incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And when I think of Esther gaining favor from Haggai, she probably was like the calm one, the sweet one, the quiet, gentle spirit. Like she wasn't like, oh my gosh, Haggai, when they were tweezing my eyebrows, it really hurt. You guys need to work on your process. They probably weren't doing that. (laughs) She probably just like... Okay, In 2 Corinthians 4.10, it says, always carrying, about, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that in that life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So we carry inside our body just the truth of the Lord Jesus dying for us, that he will be manifested in us. That verse was a little hard for me to understand when I read it the first time. I was like, um, what? But the more I read it, the more I thought about it. We need to carry that truth in us. You know, we don't have to start the day and think, oh my gosh, where's the coffee? I can't do this. We can carry that truth like Jesus paid it all. He paid it all for us. And that's for each one of us. And we can carry that in us. And throughout our day, that can be what's coming out of us. It's that truth. Like if we have that truth in us in the beginning of the day, we can do anything. Because he's in us, and he's doing it for us, and he's doing it with us. We just have to take that trusting step. So I would ask you and challenge you, do you spend as much time on your inward beauty as you do on the outside? Spending time in prayer and being in God's word, it's precious. It's beneficial. It might seem like it's not, or it's hard. Like when I wake up, I'm like hardly awake, but... When you're in God's word, it's alive and it's speaking to each one of you. And if you're in it regularly, it will apply to you. If you are just like casually opening it on one day, that verse that you just casually look at real quick, 
I'm not saying that God's word won't work on your heart, but if you're in it regularly, he will speak to you through that regularity of his word, and it will always be alive and piercing your heart and affecting you. So I would just encourage you, because I know that to be true, because I used to be the turn to a page and hope that it speaks to me, person. And now, no, I need, I need to be in God's word. And if I'm not, I know it, and I can feel it, and it's hard. Okay, so they were given a choice of jewelry to take with them. Oh, I have it still. I'm still, like, breaking down what they did. So first they go, and they get their 12 months of beauty preparations. They get all their, they get lovely and then when it's their turn to have their night with the king, they give their choice of clothing and jewelry to take with them, and they're taken to the king's private rooms. And then the following morning, they were brought to the second harem where the king's wives or concubines lived, and they were never to be seen by him unless he delighted in them and requested them by name. So he saw approximately 400 ladies. I can't remember all of your names. I would like to, but I can't. And I don't imagine that he remembered all 400 ladies. But they were not going to see him again. And so can you picture just the, the loneliness that they were going to experience going over to the second harem? They were used. They weren't going to find a husband. They were, they were claimed. I don't know. It breaks my heart just thinking about it. Okay. <clears throat> so in verse 15 through 18 in Esther chapter 2. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of women, had advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in the sight, in his sight, and more than all the other virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head, made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, another party, the feast of Esther, for all of his officials and servants, and he promised a holiday, or he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. In verse 15, we see it's Esther's turn to see the king. We see her exercising her gentle, quiet, wise attitude here. She seeks wise counsel. And in, in God's word, we're instructed to seek wise counsel over and over. Um, just to make examples, plans succeed through good counsel. Don't go to war without wise advice. That's Proverbs 20:18. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your, he- apply your ear to my knowledge. Proverbs 22:17. Pride leads to conflict. Those who take advice are wise. Proverbs 19.20 Get all the advice and instruction you can so you will be wise the rest of your life. That's Proverbs 19.20 We should be seeking wise counsel. If we have a decision that's hard to make, we should find someone who is wise counsel, not like ungodly counsel, but a wise counselor, maybe some lady who's more of an older sister in the Lord that could give you wise counsel on that. And the Bible tells us over and over, seek the wise counsel. You don't have to make these decisions on your own. You can get help. And it says that she obtained favor again with all who saw her. That means that Haggai had some good tips. He knew what would look good, what the king would like. And um, 
It says in verse 7 in the English Standard Version, when it says that she was beautiful and lovely to look at in the New King James, in English Standard it says that she has a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So it just kind of changes the phrasing just a little. But, I mean, she already had that going for her, but she was also seeking wise counsel. She was gentle and quiet. She was obtaining favor. So when it says that she was allowed to take one thing, for, or like clothing and jewelry, she could decorate herself in any way she wanted, in my flesh, I think that I might have been tempted to get bedazzled or like pick the most woo outfit because that's just kind of my personality. I might have been, she, maybe she wanted to get the sparkly one, but she's like, okay, Haggai, what is he like? What should we dress like? I don't know. But she didn't. She didn't go with the fleshly desires to get fancy. And everyone was impressed with her. And the way she looked. And it tells you that she became queen. He put the, the crown on her head and declared her queen. And there was a feast. And it was opulent again with the party. The holiday. He made it a holiday. He gave gifts and gener- generosity. And you think of how big his kingdom was. That was a lot. Okay, moving on to verse 19 of Esther chapter 2. It says, When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. I did some digging. I even texted Julie and was like, what's this second gathering? I have no idea what that is. And I still don't. But it could have been, there's no definite like what it was, but it could have been that he wanted to give the girls a whole second look and make sure that Esther was the one. We don't know, but maybe, maybe. And then it says in verse 19 that Mordecai sat within the gate. And this basically tells us he had a job. He was in an official position, and it's likened to being part of the king's court. Um, You would find lawyers there. You would find the wise men and officials of the kingdom at the gate. It was like the court. But, so now we know what he does. In verse 20 of Esther 2, it says, Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai, just as... She obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. So it says for the second time that she did not reveal her people. And I know I've talked to some people about, like they think it's kind of deceitful of her to not be sharing this and for Mordecai to be telling her to keep it a secret. Um, First, in her defense, um, Mordecai was like her father and he requested she didn't. And it says in Proverbs 22.6, to train up a child in the way he should go, and he will not depart from it. She was being obedient to her father figure. And earlier in Proverbs, it says, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. So what if Mordecai was thinking of the future? He was being forced, he was having foresight and thinking, I mean, the Jews were persecuted from the get-go. They had it rough. And he was thinking, you know, if they know I'm a Jew, it's going to be rough. Maybe we should just not talk about it. And that was him expressing foresight. Speaking of foresight, I have a really great story where I learned how I need to have more foresight. It's not fun. Okay, so my family lives at Calvary Chapel Christian Camp. This is a really fun, exciting place to live. I have two boys. They're three years old and five years old. It can be dangerous. There's some dangerous things that could happen there. And I try to, you know, like, 
we have our routine. You know, we go down to the kitchen and have lunch with my mom so they get to see Nina. And then sometimes they go and visit their D-dad, which is my dad, their grandpa. And they go up to maintenance, and sometimes he drives them up in, their, in his golf cart. And it's fun for them. But here's what happened. So we were at lunch, and we wanted to go see D-dad up at maintenance. And we were going to ride with him up in the golf cart. But he got a phone call, so we were waiting. And I don't know if you've seen three- and five-year-olds wait. It's very full of motion. It's very stressful, especially when you're tired. You're like, could you just stand still? So I'm, like, thinking, how can I get them to just wait? Without thinking, I told them to go wait in the golf cart for their grandpa. Yeah. They ran over, and I told them to sit down and not touch any buttons or pedals, but before I could get the words out, my youngest son tapped the brake pedal, and it was parked on an incline, and it went very quickly and stopped. There was a trash truck. So there's a trash truck here, and then the golf cart was like this, and it just it was like three seconds, and it was over. But it was like the worst three seconds of my life. But so he tapped on the brake, and all of a sudden it goes plummeting into the trash truck. And let's just, I'll just say, you know, the trash truck and the golf cart are fine. They had a little bit of damage, but it was fixed quickly. And my children are fine. They did not get injured, but it could have been worse. And if I would have had foresight not to send my kids to a golf cart that is on an incline that can go rolling, (laughs) if I would just have thought, you know. I mean, I don't know if there's any other mother here that's ever been tired, And just was like, can I get my kids to be entertained for five more seconds? Please, Dad, hang up the phone. But this was just something I did. It was my mistake. I should have been thinking, you know, this was this would be dangerous. But I wasn't. I was just tired. And it was very humiliating. Let's just say there was some discussions in my house, and I was defensive. And my husband was trying to just admonish me, you know, you need to have more foresight and think about it. And my answer was, I can't see the future. But he's like, but as parents, don't you think we should be thinking a little more like in the future, maybe don't do that. So, yeah, now you all know my worst story. (laughs) But all I know is at the time it was the worst thing in the world that could happen to me. But as you can see, the Lord is using that to express the need to have foresight. And it's biblical. God's word says it. And here my argument is I can't see the future. He's not asking us to see the future, but to contemplate what could possibly happen and go wrong. So, I believe that Mordecai was being prudent. And the definition of prudent is acting with or showing care and thought for the future. He didn't have to know the future. He was just thinking about it. So embarrassing. But hey, let's get real here. Okay, so far we've seen the king gathered virgins for him. We met Mordecai and Esther. We saw Esther become queen. This was a very jam-packed, exciting chapter. And when you think there couldn't be any more, there's another tiny little nugget story here at the end. In verse 21 of Esther chapter 2. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told the queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on gallows, and it was written in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Whoa. Okay, so while he's working at the gate, 
He found out, I don't know if he overheard or if he was like in a conversation or whatever, but he found out that Big Thin and Teresh, I mean, what kind of name is Big Thin? Just saying. I'm, I just, I don't know. Those are great names. <clears throat> so they were said to be doorkeepers and possibly of his private chambers. Like that was a very vulnerable position for the king. Like they could have easily taken him out. Um, but so they were plotting, they were actively plotting to lay hands on the king possibly kill the king. We're not told why they're angry or how they intended to do it. We just know that Mordecai intervened. He took it to Esther, who took it to the king, and they confirmed the suspicions, and they were hanged at the gallows, it says. I've also read that, or that it's described as being impaled on a tree or a stake. Either way, pretty rough way to go. We also know From reading this, that Mordecai doesn't receive appreciation for this life-saving gesture or of his loyalty at this time. But you will see later on in the book of Esther that Mordecai's actions will be remembered and it will benefit their plight. But what we see here is God's timing. It's all in the Lord's time. So when you think of things that you've done for people or good things that you've done and there's no thank you note in the mail, remember God sees and your reward is in heaven. And if not here at any time in the world, in this world, it will be in heaven. But just remember that the Lord has perfect timing. So throughout this book, throughout Esther, the whole book, we see the theme is God's providence. All of these things are God's plan and they're unfolding at the right time. Every detail will come together like a puzzle in one piece. And so when I was a little girl, I used to sleep talk. I probably don't do that anymore. Probably not. But um, I had a friend over, and she was not sleeping. I don't know. She had insomnia or something. But she told me in the morning, she's like, yeah, you were talking in your sleep. And I'm like, what did I say? She said, oh, you said it all has to come together like a puzzle in one piece. And I kept thinking about that when I was doing, not that I'm like prophetic or anything, but I was just thinking about what I said and how this all, it's all part of this big plan that God has for Esther and her people. Like Israelites are God's people, they're chosen people, and they go through these things, but he always sees them through. Just remember, it all has to come together like a puzzle, and they're like kind of jagged-edged and kind of pokey, and they don't always fit perfect when you put them together. But God knows the, the end picture, and he's, he's unfolding it in his precise, precise timing. Um, I wanted to end with our memory verse that the directed study has. I don't know. If, I don't think the inductive has the memory verse. I'm not sure. Shows shows how much I know. But it's Psalms 31, 14 through 15a. And it says, but, for as, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. So as we go into our small groups and we go throughout our week, I just want you to meditate on that, knowing that God is my God and my times are in his hands. So let's pray. Dear sweet Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. Thank you for the, the word that you've given us today. I pray that it will penetrate our hearts and stick stick to the walls of our hearts and that we'd never forget that you're in control and that you have a great plan, Lord. Um, I lay it all at your feet, and, and I just give it to you. In Jesus' name, 